Hello, everybody. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to the Things Observed podcast. And today I have on John Kleizek, who is a master's in English, and he has taught college rhetoric and research argumentation for eight years now. And he is today on to talk about Barbara Marks Hubbard, which is very interesting. I'm very glad that he is coming on to the show to discuss this with us. He's also the author of School World Order, The Technocratic Globalization of Corporatized Education, by uh, published by Trine Day Books. And he's also a contributor to several different publications. Today, we are having him on to discuss um, a couple articles that he wrote for Whitney Webb's website, Unlimited Hangout. He's also a director of writing and editing at Black Freighter Productions, and he holds a black belt in classical taekwondo. So I will, um, and he's also a certified kickboxing instructor. Instructor, so I'll make sure to try and not aggravate him. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, how are you doing today? And is there anything else that you want the audience to to know about you? No, that was a pretty good intro. I'm I'm doing all right. Um, looking forward to our discussion on these uh, first installments in this series that I got going. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, um, I was very uh, interested and kind of frightened when I started reading these couple articles that you have out on Unlimited Hangout, which I will post um, in the show notes the links to that below and where you can find. Um, the other work of yours, so that way everyone can check it out, which I highly recommend. But anyways, um, so how did you first get into researching Barbara Marks Hubbard? Uh, actually, I was kind of wanting to take a break from writing about education, which has been the bulk of all my research uh, over the last several years. And so I just asked Whitney if, uh, if there was any topics, subjects that, that maybe she wanted covered uh, just maybe mix things up a little bit. And she had sent me uh, a few memes that had been going around uh, regarding Barbara Marks Hubbard. And it was a, in particular, one of them was this infamous quote uh, in which she basically calls for the culling of about one fourth of humanity. Uh, and she refers to the, the elites who will do the culling as basically the riders of the pale horse. Um, and, I, you know, I, sort of the the whole occult new age uh, dimension of the topic kind of dovetailed with some of the research that I'd done uh, regarding the order of skull and bones and their influence in the development of uh, education technocracy. So I was also interested to tackle that because I, I figured it would help provide some extra insight into uh, some of the research I'd already done and was hoping that, you know, it would uh, sort of circle back and uh, dovetail back into my broader body of work on uh, education research. And so uh, eventually here, I'm going to, I think I've, I've found a couple leads, a couple ways in which I'm, I can tie this back into some of the other things I've written about previously. But that's basically how I sort of got my uh, feet wet with uh, Barbara Marks Hubbard and uh, the New Age movement in, in this substantive manner that uh, I've done in these articles. Absolutely. Yeah. I, what I found particularly interesting about this is Barbara Marks Hubbard is such an interesting character to me. And we'll get into a second and in letting you explain who exactly she is in great detail. But what I found, you know, interesting and troubling is kind of 
she's this character where all these different things that I'm very concerned about begin to kind of dovetail with her, whether that be with the transhumanism and the eugenics or kind of this, you know, synthetic new age spirituality, this um, kind of occult Gnostic undertones to things. And, uh, you know, you say that you're going to get into it later into the series. So I'm very much uh, interested to see what that is, but also, you know, uh, possible connections to sexual abuse cults and to pedophilia rings and all these different subjects are kind of things that I have looked into. And Barbara Marks Hubbard seems to be this person where all these different things kind of coalesce. Um, so that's what I found very interesting about her and um, with your series of articles. So I guess just to start with, um, you know, and we'll get, you know, much deeper into who she is, but what is kind of just like a, a brief overview of who Barbara Marks Hubbard is before we, you know, dive into the specifics of everything, just so everybody can kind of be brought up to speed. Okay. So, um, so she was, the daughter of uh, Lewis Marx, who uh, he owned Marx Toys, was one of the largest toy companies in the United States. So she was the heir to that uh, fortune, uh, was independently wealthy. Um, and a certain point in her life, um, she met um, Dwight D. Eisenhower. I believe her father was friends with him and... Um, uh, she asked him a question, something to the effect of, uh, you know, in, in the wake of World War II and, the, you know, the proliferation of nuclear weapons. She basically asked him something to the effect of, you know, what's the positive angle here in the, in the development of our new technologies? And he basically had no answer for her. So she, so she, she tells the story over and over again. She said this sort of set her on this a journey to, to get the answer to that question. Uh, and this sort of uh, led her to start to study, I guess, uh, what would become the, the new age and various esoteric uh, practices and, and things like that. Um, and eventually she comes in contact with uh, Lawrence Rockefeller, who would basically be her longtime benefactor for several several years, uh, funded a lot of her projects, including her foundation for conscious evolution. Um, and that was inspired by, uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who was, uh, basically a Jesuit priest and also a eugenicist. So she took her inspiration from de Chardin, uh, the funding from Rockefeller, and then was able to network with some very influential people in, uh, various, various movements that sort of uh, coalesce or come together in, in the broader new age movement. And so some of those would be like Abraham Maslow and the whole idea of his transpersonal psychology, psychology of being humanistic psychology. Uh, and then other people like um, Jonas Salk, uh, the, um, the man who's credited with um, coming up with the polio vaccine. And then she would network with, uh, a range of other prominent New Agers, people like Deepak Chopra, Gene Houston, um, Lynn Twist, uh, John Nesbitt. She helped co-fund the World Future Society. She 
sit on the board of the World Future Society, or rather the Global Advisory Board with people like Maurice Strong. And so she also came into contact with people like Strong. Strong was uh, the, the man who set up the UN uh, Conference on the Human Environment in 1971, which is basically the, the first environmental conference that the UN spearheaded. Uh, he, he then became the head of the United Nations uh, Environmental Program. Um, this was in tandem with the, um, the publication of the Club of Rome's Limits to Growth, same year. Uh, and then Strong would, would be influential in developing sustainable development as a concept and then other environmental conferences. Um, and, and so Hubbard also was basically networking with many of the uh, oligarchs who pushed what is now the the sustainable development movement. Um, And, and then she would also come in contact in her later years with some of the people uh, at like Singularity University, which um, is prominent figures there include Ben Gertzel. He's the uh, head of Hanson Robotics, came up with the Sophia robot, was funded by Jeffrey Epstein. Um, Ray Kurzweil, who's right, written many, many books on transhumanism, such as The Singularity is Near. <clears throat> and so this sort of gives you a nice overview of sort of her beginnings, um, her involvement in everything from the New Age spiritual movement to transhumanism to sustainable development. And it might be worth noting as well that at one point she actually ran for uh, vice president uh, during the, the Walter Mondale campaign in the in the 1980s. So she also was uh, influential in, in political circles. Um, it, it was also part of the Soviet American Dialogue Project. So it was trying to do some sort of... Um, diplomacy uh, outside of the state apparatus with the Soviet Union um, and had, had some other connections um, to like uh, was promoted like uh, space space exploration uh, wanted to have a Department of Peace that would focus largely on that and that that sort of uh, circles back into her ideas about how basically conscious or spiritual evolution and transhumanism sort of uh, would would come together through this, this evolving technologies. Very interesting. And there's a lot to unpack there. So I guess that we'll just start unpacking that. So you mentioned, um, and hopefully I pronounced this right, Pierre Tehard de Chardin, who was someone who was very influential on Barbara Marx Hubbard. And so what impact did he have on her? And can you just tell us a little bit about him? Because I found him to be very interesting. I read that article by Matthew Errett that you link in your in your article, and I was completely unaware of this guy, and I was just finding him to be absolutely fascinating. Yeah, so he was a Jesuit priest. Um, all of his writings were deemed basically heretical by the Catholic Church. I think some of them in in you know recent years have been. Um, I don't know that they've been like acknowledged as not heretical at this point, but I, I believe they were not were like all his writings were supposed to like not be published. So they've at least been published. And I, I just, I think that, um, you know, sort of the more the ecumenist uh, 
branch of some of the Catholic hierarchy has been a little more amenable to him in recent years. But at the time, uh, he was he was basically shunned as a as a heretic by the church officially. Um, and some of that had to do with basically his ideas about uh, the noosphere. That's probably the most important thing to point out regarding Deschardin and his inspiration uh, of Hubbard's uh, own ideas about conscious evolution and and transhumanism. And so the concept of the noosphere is basically this idea that um, that the universe uh, has sort of a, a mind sphere, right? There, so uh, the, there's an, it comes from the term nous, which is, uh, it's an ancient Greek philosophical concept uh, by Anaxagoras. And basically he said that, right, that the, sort of the metaphysical essence of the universe is, is mind. Um, and that, that the, that the intelligence of the universe sort of uh, comes to know itself through the consciousness of the human mind. And so as the noosphere sort of evolves cosmically into the biological evolution of humankind, it manifests itself in the, in the mind or the intellect of the human being. And then that intellect is then expressed through uh, humankind's ability to manipulate their environment through technology. And so technology basically becomes this physical manifestation or this artifact of the mind sphere of the universe transmitted through the human mind into the technology. Uh, and that eventually, right, moving into this fourth industrial revolution, the, the transhumanist concept is that then we, then we merge with that technology and sort of, so the, the noosphere or the noose or the mind of the universe, it's, it's conscious evolution to use Hubbard's term comes full circle, right? In which uh, it, it manifests itself through our mind into this technology and then back into the human being from which it came. Um, and obviously for, for Deschardin, you know, this was, this was sort of, I guess you would say part of his soteriology and for him, basically salvation, uh, is happens through this, through this process of evolution and it happens collectively, which is obviously not, uh, not in line with Catholic doctrine about salvation, which is individual and from, uh, from Jesus Christ, right. And, and the sacrifice that he, that he gave. Uh, not not by through some collective uh, conscious evolution, um, but there was also you know some of the things that he wrote about uh, eugenics and and, and race uh, in particular, which did not align with the Catholic Church. Obviously, uh, was rather outspoken against eugenics, um, especially throughout its heyday, which is around the time when. When Deschardin would have been writing, but there's there's several quotes uh, that I'll be putting into the next article, uh, in which in which he clearly uh, made uh, calls for culling human population, often with emphasis on what he deemed to be unfit ethnic or, or, or racial specimens, um, and so you know that that also sort of would have put him uh, out of line with the Catholic church, but it, but it definitely also put him in line with just the concept of transhumanism because 
transhumanism, that concept is coined by Julian Huxley. And Julian Huxley was, uh, he was the president of the British Eugenic Society. He was the brother of Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World. Uh, Julian was also the first director general of the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. Um, and basically what Julian said was that uh, in a book called New Bottles for New Wine, it was published in either 1958 or 1959, he basically said that uh, evolution, we can keep controlling it through, you know, old school eugenic selection, meaning basically by selective breeding, that means basically uh, breeding the sort of uh, what they what they call positive, quote unquote, positive eugenics, which is sort of the inbreeding of elite specimens from the gene pool. And then negative eugenics, which would be the culling of what they refer to as the unfit specimens from the gene pool. And they would do that through uh, euthanasia, abortion, sterilization. So Julian says we can still do that. But actually, the main way that we can control evolution is through he says through machines and ideas. And so the machines being uh, today, right? Not just obviously, you know, uh, the mechanical industrial revolution, but now the digital industrial revolution and then ideas being culture. And so that is uh, basically shaping, reshaping human values in a way that uh, makes them amenable to merging with these technologies. And so, uh, for, for Julian, then transhumanism is basically eugenics 2.0. It's the outgrowth of eugenics. And we should also note here that Julian and uh, Deschardin were actually close, close buddies. They were very uh, fond of each other's work and spoke highly of each other. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something else that, you know, uh, you would initially think that, you know, a Jesuit would be a strange bedfellow with someone like Julian Huxley, but they kind of, you know, come together because they view this, you know, uh, move towards technocracy and um, technology to be a means by which to achieve these kinds of eugenic ends. But yeah, Deschardin's a very, very interesting character. I also thought that it was interesting because it seems like his ideas were kind of a way to try and, I don't know if rectify um, would be the, the, the right word to use, but, you know, uh, you know, on the origins of species was written by Darwin and there was kind of all these Darwinist and Malthusian ideas that were proliferating during his time. And so he was kind of finding a way to bring that together. Um, that kind of, you know, meaningless directionalist, uh, kind of thing together with, uh, Christianity, which turns into this weird hybrid thing that he has um created with the uh noosphere and and all of this other stuff but i also was finding it very interesting that he was also involved with like the piltdown man hoax or seemingly he was anyways uh, wasn't he like the one to find the actual uh skull that was supposedly the you know missing link and was later figured out to to not be I, yeah, I'm, I'm. The details are foggy for me as far as his direct involvement, but yeah, I was actually gonna gonna note that uh, in my spiel there uh, a minute ago. Yeah, but he was he was definitely uh, closely involved. He might have even been you know on the ground, the excavation site, uh, you know, when they discovered uh, Peking Man. Uh, but yes, he definitely was uh, is affiliated associated with that event. And okay, Peking Man, and yeah. I accidentally said Pilton Man. Um, I think those are two separate um, 
<laughs> missing link hoaxes uh getting them confused in my mind but anyway so yeah i thought that he was um, a, a very interesting character um to to say the least and he would be you know someone who was very influential on barbara marks hubbard and so you know you already talked a little bit about the uh noosphere um you know which comes from this idea of news starting um in greek philosophy and so how does this you know kind of end up and, and you've already touched on this a little bit but factoring into hubbard's kind of cosmology and, and philosophy of the world and uh what technology has to offer uh, mankind? Um, so, so for her, I, she would basically just take that concept and sort of rebrand it as conscious evolution. So, ch- switching out uh, noetics, the news, the noosphere with uh, consciousness, and and then uh, she would made the argument that we're seeing sort of uh, the culmination of this evolution of consciousness through uh, through technology, as, as uh, Julian and um, Deschardin would have uh, alluded to. Uh, and in particular, one of the things that she pointed out was that she, she believed that, uh, that social media in particular was becoming the nervous system of uh, the noosphere. Okay, and that it would become a collective nervous system that would not just enable us all to basically merge with technology, in other by using these uh, social media apps as sort of the medium through collective conscious communication and through uh, collectivization more broadly. Um, but she she basically thought that that this would bring about about this uh the new age uh so she had a very very positive view of uh in you know names specifically facebook and and some of these other social media companies which uh for you know in many ways it 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 has you know enabled uh it's it's enabling us to right uh get in contact with each other you and i it's it's enabled uh me to be able to share my research uh and you know make make contact with a lot of people that probably would have never made contact with had it not been available but we also see the ways in which um these these social media companies and these technologies have have also uh you know increased various uh deleterious psychological effects on people just in terms of just anxiety and depression and things on a on a vague you know day-by-day interaction it's one of the things that my students most frequently want to write about is the the way that social media has you know the effects on their anxiety and depression and things but more 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 nefariously uh you know we see the ways in which it is being used and manipulated to stoke uh civil strife and division uh and you know you the last couple years have sort of uh seen seen it uh rise to new heights uh which in many ways sort of echo what what took place during the the arab spring you know about uh, roughly a decade or so ago uh and so we're seeing the ways in which these social media technologies as much as they might bring us together uh, i don't know that they're that they are evolving us in sort of the utopian way that hubbard envisioned but that's sort of the the main uh, 
one of the main ways that she uh, suggests that that the noosphere or the consciousness of the universe is is evolving through technology. Another another technology that she promoted uh, as part of this uh, trend towards you know transhumanist conscious ev- evolution had to do with uh, using uh, various wearables. Uh, such as those that are developed and, and uh, produced and sold by a company called HeartMath. Uh, there's the HeartMath Institute, and then there's HeartMath Inc. One is the nonprofit, one is the for-profit, and uh, these are various app apps that can be used. Uh, they're basically meditation apps, and you can also use them in group settings and in even you know international, global group settings, and you can you can use them to either to achieve what they call heart coherence. Uh, and that's basically getting your heart waves, uh, your brain waves and your breathing into a state of um, where your consciousness is. Uh, well, in, in some ways you could say that it's either trying to achieve some sort of inner peace or inner bliss, but could also be coherence with the, the group that you're using it with. So it could be used in business meetings or board meetings, or you could have like a global meditation uh, through something they call the Global Coherence Initiative, where you where everybody wears these apps and they meditate on a, on a global or particular geopolitical issue. Uh, and basically everybody's supposed to meditate and get their, get their biorhythms in sync uh, while focusing on whatever is the, the, the trendy, you know, new, new geopolitical, uh, theme. So those are, those are two of the, I guess, the particular ways that she saw technology, uh, driving this noetic conscious transhuman evolution. Yeah. I found that heart math stuff to be, um, just very, I mean, as I was reading it and I was checking out some of the stuff that you used to to source it, I mean, it just seemed so science fiction. I mean, it kind of seems like something that would be um, like in a Philip K. Dick novel or or something like that. And there was something about it that was very um, kind of made me a little bit uneasy because you could just view it as this way of, you know, everybody kind of. Uh, syncing up with one another and we're all trying to uh, breathe the same way and stuff like this but given kind of um, her ideas about uh, you know the noosphere and you know reaching this new epoch in human history and stuff and uh, you know technology is kind of like the nervous system of this like new kind of world spirit or what have you there was something that was a uh, at least to me personally, pretty creepy about all of this. And, you know, we've been seeing with the, uh, you know, kind of fourth industrial revolution agenda, this increase in wearable technologies, you know, which, uh, you know, I mean, some people have them for medical issues and, and stuff like that. But then you also have people who just find a lot of convenience in their um, Apple watches. But, uh, a way that you kind of describe this is kind of like a um, like a cybernetic uh, neurofeedback loop, um, you know, via these uh, wearable technologies. And, you know, with the heart math, um, you know, you could view this as potentially um, lulling people into a a false sense of, of spiritual 
bliss. So I found that all to be um, very interesting and concerning to, to say the least. And uh, definitely made me sit uneasy. So I don't know. Do you think that there's any chance that there is um, kind of a, that this might be more benevolent than maybe it seems to someone like me? Or do you think that this um, is more like uh, getting people to be part of the hive mind or something like that? Well, yeah. So there's, there's two aspects of it that um, are particularly troubling. One is the data mining aspect and the other is sort of the hive mind aspect that you, you point out. And that has more to do with its use in, group settings, whether corporate or government. Uh, and then the data mining obviously can feed into various methods of uh, social credit tracking down the pipe. Um, now, you know, on an individualized basis, I, I, you know, I suppose it's probably benign more or less to, if you're trying to, you know, uh, meditate in a and not you know not channeling or going to see trying to reach some sort of nirvana but let's just say you want to uh you have anxiety right and you're trying to calm yourself down without you know without meds or some other uh you know pharmaceutical and so you know you want to do some breathing exercises and this app is going to measure where your uh, where your heart rate is at and basically get help you get in tune with uh, your your physiology to know uh, what how to how to manage the breathing technique in a way that gets the the anxiety decreasing results. Um, you know, I I think sometimes about like um, you know like some of the Fitbits that people use, uh, especially in like martial arts. A lot of times, people use heart rate monitors to see right when they're doing cardio, intense cardio. They want to get their heart rate up to a certain point, and then they want to keep it there. And it can help them sort of measure that. Some people might have a harder time uh, pushing themselves to that place because, right, they feel like they're redlining and they don't want to push themselves harder. Or maybe some people push themselves too hard, right? And this can help them sort of manage, uh, you know, manage their their exercise goals. And so, uh, you know, to to have a device that sort of gives you insight into your physiology could be itself benign. Uh, that said, you know, um, I'm, I think of someone like Justin Gaethje's coach, his name escapes me, sorry. Um, but, uh, you know, he, they asked him, you know, do you, does he use, does he use uh, heart rate monitors or any of those? And he says, no, he says, because everybody's different, you know? And the other thing is that, you know, ultimately at, you know, best case scenario, I would say that something like that once it gives you the insight into the into the breathing technique or to the the level of physical exertion you need to achieve your you know health goals, um, that you should be able to sort of you should be able to sense that internally based on your own physiological signal. So uh, in that way, you know, I mean, I, I I suppose it could be used, but there's no way to use these devices without without some form of uh, data tracking. I mean, they're just, it's the, it's the design of the product is to take those analytics uh, and, you know, hopefully store them in a private, in a private database. But, you know, with, with most of them, they're at the very least, 
uh, anonymizing the data, right? Meaning you're removing your personally identifiable information, but then they'll take that data and they'll use it to extrapolate broader social trends, which can then be used for other methods of corporate or government social engineering through the market or through other political initiatives. Uh, in particular, I can think of the HeartMath Institute. Actually, if you go on uh, their website, one of the they have these in the global coherence initiatives. They have these various um, meditation uh, monthly, at least, and might be more frequently than that. Uh, but one of one of them during lockdowns, uh, there was a they they did a little report on they were tracking the data to see. Um, if there was an increased use of the device and or if there was an increase in um, biorhythms, heart, uh, heart rhythms that indicated increased anxiety or increased stress, right? In other words, they were taking all of the data that they got from people using the HeartMath apps to get to gain sort of an epidemiological insight into the broader collective effects of the lockdowns on people's mental health. All right. Now, was it anonymized again without personally identifiable information? It sounds like it was based on the report, but nonetheless, right, they're they're gaining uh, sort of these broad insights into ways in which, uh, you know, social engineering can be further manipulated. And then they also had, um, you know, for the high mind aspect, one of the one of the group meditations uh, this was around the summer, I want to say 2021. So it was right around the time in, when, when the lockdowns were sort of, <coughs> excuse me, were sort of um, pay, fading away a little bit, right? So they were, you could, they were starting to uh, let people move around a little bit more. And in this meditation, uh, what it, what it, asked everybody to do is basically it said something like, now we know you're all anxious to get out and, you know, be out there in the real world again. Uh, but remember, we're not out of this just quite yet. And if you get too excited and go out there, you might spread that COVID to somebody. So, uh, you know, we need to, today we are meditating collectively to, um, sort of channel the the inner peace that we need to stay put and stay locked down for just a little bit longer Till we till we fully turn the corner. So it was a clear a clear example of ways in which right they wanted you know global populations to synchronize their heart rates while meditating on the desire to conform to this the the new normal lockdown. And I believe the article even uh, the title had the new normal in it. If you go to my uh, Telegram page. Um, that, that, that didn't make it into the article, uh, but I did do a little sort of follow up. It's on my telegram page. You can, you can read that, um, that, that page on heart math. So those are the nefarious, uh, sort of the troublesome or dangerous uses of it. Uh, uh you know, in, in theory, I suppose if it was, you know, if the data was protected and people used it on an individualized basis just to get, you know, medical readings, insights into their physiology, perhaps, but I don't know how you, how you separate uh, certainly, I don't know how you separate the data mining from the device. Uh, it probably would be easier to, you know, not engage in these in these group settings. And I'll just add, you know, another another way that some of these were used. There's a similar one called HeartSync, uh, and that was developed by a guy named Mikey Siegel. And this was a guy that gave a presentation at the Esalen Institute, uh, and 
at the Esalen Institute, the presentation had, was titled something to the effect of hacking consciousness was part of the title. And the way that that was to be done was through these uh, heart sync biofeedback wearables, basically the same device, just a you know, different uh, proprietary uh, product, perhaps a slightly different hardware or slightly different algorithm or something like that, but essentially the same technology. And one of the uses that, that he and his colleagues suggested it could be used for was when you go into a corporate board meeting um, that you could, um, that you could basically get everybody on the board meeting in coherence with each other before you discuss whatever's uh, on the agenda for that day. So you can imagine, right, if you you and your colleagues go into a board meeting and they're going to propose something that, uh, you know, some people are not going to like, perhaps be resistant to, if you get everybody, you know, into this, into the same sort of, uh, what they call heart coherence, getting, getting everybody on the same biorhythms, that's going to sort of reinforce and strengthen you know, the, the tendency to be peer pressured into going with going along with the group against your better interest to begin with. So then there's then there's another example in which not just, you know, through these global initiatives, but like, you know, at a company, right, it, can, it could be used to, you know, garner artificial support, uh, sort of leveraging what uh, what has been known as the Delphi technique, which is basically it's a it's a RAND Corporation methodology for basically uh, eliciting artificial consensus and uh, in, in making sure that in these in these types of corporate or other uh, board scenarios that you can get every all of the various um, players on board with the top down directives. Very interesting, very interesting stuff. Yeah. And uh, there, there is some just also weird about kind of the, uh, the, the, the group aspect to it, not to get uh, too far out there or something, but it almost kind of reminds me of some stuff that I've looked into during other research about like um, group sigil magic or, or something like that, where everybody's kind of imbuing something or all meditating on the same thing. And it kind of increases the, the power as opposed to just um, one practitioner to it. But I don't want to get get too out there and there's so much other stuff to talk about so someone who you mentioned um in your kind of introduction to barbara marx hubbard was lawrence rockefeller and you know during my research the rockefellers as with many people's research you know show up time and time again um you know uh, like an interesting example is you know because i mean we all know that uh, big oil you know basically took over the world and and all of that stuff and all the things that they do through their NGOs and stuff right now. But when I uh, did my first episode, which was on Alfred Kinsey, I saw that basically the sexual revolution was started with Rockefeller money. And so this was yet another thing that I found interesting was Lawrence Rockefeller, his relationship to Barbara Marks Hubbard, and just kind of the larger new age spirituality uh, movement in general. So could you tell us just a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so Lawrence was one of the lesser known Rockefellers. Uh, he's one of the brothers, uh, I think there are four or five of them. So his brothers would have been, so there was Lawrence, then there was John D the third, then there was David, then there was Winthrop and then there was Nelson. So there's five of them. Okay. And, uh, Lawrence 
um, he was the one that was really into sort of, I guess, the, the whole new age, uh, the whole new age thing. And, and um, he he promoted uh, Hubbard in almost every one of her books. She gives a, a, an explicit thanks to uh, to to Rockefeller's funding. Um, and he, uh, he's going to show up again in my third, in my next piece, my third piece. I apparently he was heavily involved in, um, sustainable development, uh, conservation movements, various environmental movements. Um, and, uh, one of his mentors was actually, uh, one of the Osbournes, um, it was either Friedrich or Henry. Uh, but uh, both of which, whom were, were eugenicists. So it's, you know, again, it's interesting that, uh, you know, you see this, this sort of this, uh, combination, uh, or, or you see where the, the eugenics, the transhumanism and the Malthusianism all sort of come together in various ways, whether through the, the SDGs or through, um, various, uh, uh, high tech initiatives that he would have also funded through, um, then rock. So he was also on the board of, I believe the Rockefeller brothers fund. Um, and, uh, he also started, um, then rock was, was originally Rockefeller brothers Inc. Okay. Um, and he, at, at then rock, he, he funded all sorts of stuff. Um, just a, a brief list of some of the biotech uh, uh, companies would have been uh, so Unity Biotechnology, Element Biosciences, Regenex Bio, 10X Genomics, Targeted Genomics, uh, Genetics Institute. Uh, and he even uh, funded a company that was called Cerna Therapeutics, S-I-R-N-A Therapeutics, which uh, developed, quote, RNA interference technology. Uh, and was eventually acquired by Merck. So it's it's interesting that uh, he would he was also through through Venrock uh, financing uh, RNA technology early on. Uh, he also at Venrock funded uh, quantum computing and uh, various nan nanotech uh, initiatives and things like that. So uh, Lawrence, you know, was was invested in the, the sustainable development movement basically all things transhumanist, or at least the various genetics, robotics, nanotech, uh, biotech, all the various uh, high-tech elements that uh, come together in transhumanism, uh, and then was very influential in, in financing um, um, uh, just the, the whole New Age movement through through Barbara Marx Hubbard. Actually, there's, um, in the article, I mentioned that he... Also, uh, the guy's name was Roger Weir, and he financed, uh, Roger Weir wrote various Gnostic interpretations of uh, the relationship between Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene. Um, and what I had stumbled onto later in my research, didn't make it into the article, but in uh, the book of co-creation or one of, um, one of Hubbard's uh, books titled the revelation or the, or the book of co-creation is the subtitle for one of the editions. There's a few of them. Uh, but in there, she, she also refers to Roger Weir as uh, I believe the quote is the man who, who put it all together or the, or the, 
man who knew it all or some some interesting uh i can't remember the phrase off the top of my head but it was she basically praised him as a as a, a very influential figure in the whole new age new age movement so those are sort of uh lawrence's uh, contributions to to hubbard's uh conscious evolution um he did also uh, was involved in the human potential movement, I believe. Um, I'm trying to find it here. I, I believe he, he also funded, yes, he also funded the Esalen Institute. Um, and um, there was there was one more thing I was going to note, but 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 that's that well, that covers it because it, it escapes me now. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, I think that that was a a good overview of kind of Lawrence Rockefeller's role in all of this. And, you know, I mean, speaking of things like the Esalen Institute and stuff, it's kind of interesting that these um, kind of groups and think tanks that are sometimes associated with New Age spirituality or kind of like the counterculture movement of the 60s, there's also kind of this, you know, uh, dark thread where it's not all just, you know, love and peace, but there's also all this transhumanism that's inside of there, which is a, a very interesting. And, you know, obviously you see that in a figure like Barbara Marks Hubbard and also, you know, just that these types of people are being funded by the Rockefellers and and what have you. So very, very interesting stuff. And so you know, just to kind of build off of some of this, you know, Hubbard would be bankrolled by Rockefeller money, but she would also become involved with the Eusykian network and Abraham Maslow. And, you know, he's, you know, known today mostly for his, you know, uh, the hierarchy of, of needs, uh, basically anybody who takes an introductory into psychology class, you know, I've had multiple people um, who I've known who go to college, you know, explain to me, about the hierarchy of needs or something like that, you know? So I think that's what most people know Maslow for today, but what was this Eusykian network and why is it of importance when we're discussing Hubbard and how does Maslow factor into all of this? Uh, so, so Maslow. Okay. So Maslow and the Eusykian network. Um, so uh, she was very close to Abraham Maslow uh, in her, um, biography her autobiography it's called the hunger of eve she mentions in there that um she actually was saw she was with abraham maslow basically on his deathbed it sounds like she was there either you know the day it happened or you know a couple days a couple days leading up to it and um she she came in contact with him uh and he promoted her through he had a group called the Eusykian network which is basically sort of um a network of various um various individuals publications and institutions who um were were on the same page towards this idea of um well ultimately transhumanism and actually you know if you the, the quote is in my book, or I'm sorry, is in is in the, the article, uh, but in the I believe it's the second edition of Toward a Psychology of Being, uh, he refers to his his flavor of humanistic psychology as 
uh, I believe he calls it the uh, the third wave, and then the fourth wave was is, which would uh, transition from humanistic or transpersonal psychology to to what he literally called transhuman psychology. Okay, so a little bit about what what is uh, humanistic or otherwise known as positive psychology. So so before uh, Maslow came on the scene, basically all of psychology, you could break it down into essentially two schools, maybe a third one if you include gestalt psychology. So the first two are going to be the psychoanalytic, basically the Freudian, and then the behaviorists, right? The behaviorists believe that all your uh, psychological uh, uh, phenomena were basically reducible to um, basically neural responses to environmental stimuli, right? Um, the, and, and that you could thereby condition or program the mind based on uh, rearranging the environment and organizing it in, into various schedules and routines that would elicit particular uh, cognitive behavioral responses. The Freudian or psychoanalytic school basically th- thought that uh, most of the pathologies that people expressed were the result of some uh, unresolved subconscious issues, usually for in the, in the Freudian theory, usually stemming from some sort of uh, sexual aberration or something to that effect. <clears throat> and in both of these schools, there was a heavy emphasis on pathology. So in both of these schools, uh, the emphasis was basically to gain insight into the ways that you could fix um, whether they be behavioral or uh, or subconscious uh, psychological maladies. Uh, and Maslow basically said, well, you know, if we can't just constantly be focusing on, you know, pathologizing every aspect of the mind, there has to be something positive uh, to cultivate, right? We can't just be reactionary uh, and corrective. We have to be proactive uh, and, I guess, evolutionary, right? And so he needed to come up with this idea of what were these, uh, basically these these positive psychological attributes or psychic states that we could uh, work towards and achieve. And uh, at this point, it, it sort of branches out into, you know, various uh, sub-disciplines and into the transpersonal and humanistic. And then eventually he wanted to, he basically coined it as transhuman. Um, and so in some ways, uh, you know, if you, if you're of sort of the atheistic materialistic, more, more of that mindset, you know, you would have an emphasis on transpersonal psychology, sort of uh, looking at various positive states of the mind on, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, as basically archetypes of the psyche uh, that you would want to self-actualize, right? Like the, the, that was his term for how you would achieve these states. But if you bring in sort of a more cosmic or spiritual element, so bringing in sort of this idea of the noosphere and stuff like that, uh, uh, that, that those, uh, that, that you're actually by achieving self-actualization, you're not just uh, working with uh, psychic archetypes, but you're actually working with like spiritual uh, or metaphysical archetypes. Uh, And in these ways, it's sort of, that's the ways in which his positive psychology sort of dovetailed with uh, 
um, the, the whole new age movement. And so uh, within that network, you had um, very, the, that network being the Eusykian network, you had Hubbard herself, but then you also had uh, the, the Esalen Institute, um, in particular, uh, Michael Murphy, uh, who was one of the co-founders of the, um, the Esalen Institute. Um, and then there was various other organizations that were, uh, that either partnered with, uh, or were otherwise connected to the Esalen Institute that were also in the Eusykian network. And so those, uh, those would have included the, the Cairo Center, the Shalal Institute, the Topanga Human Development Center, uh, and then the Center for Human Potential. Okay. And so then also what comes out of this Eusykian network and out of Maslow's idea of humanistic transpersonal or transhuman psychology is something called the human potential movement. So again, all of these terms in many ways are, are I don't want to say that they're necessarily synonymous. There's perhaps a little bit of a nuance. So as I mentioned, right, transpersonal psychologists might not have any inclination that there's anything metaphysical or cosmic or spiritual about the process of achieving self-actualization. Uh, whereas sort of somebody that's, that comes from a, you know, maybe a Gnostic or some other esoteric background would still use the transpersonal techniques, but they would imbue it with uh, an understanding that they're moving towards or working with metaphysical or spiritual energies. Uh, but at the end of the day, the techniques are ultimately the same. In some ways, um, the flexibility in terms of, you know, the hermeneutics in terms of whether you want to come at it from sort of more of a, agnostic, atheist, or spiritual perspective sort of enables it to uh, bring in, uh, sort of have a, have a flavor for, for any sort of uh, personal disposition, which, bring, which then lends itself to this concept of self-actualization, right? Because you're, you're starting with sort of your own subjective perspective and you're using these techniques uh, to achieve that. Um, and so, um, so, and that's sort of illustrative of the broader New Age movement, right? I mean, you know, New Age, historically, we can trace it back to, you know, ultimately Blavatsky and Bailey and Bassant and these people um, and, and their their ideas and also Masonry uh, in particular. Right? I believe I believe Freemasonry had or has still has a magazine that was called The New Age. Um, <clears throat> um and, but, you know, if you, if you just go to a new age bookstore, right, you're going to get, you're going to get a whole swath of, you know, various esoteric traditions, uh, some of which you could, you could look at as, you know, distinct or unique, uh, but otherwise you could easily sort of blend them together in this sort of ecumenist sort of, for lack of a better redundant term, new age method of spirituality. So that's, that's sort of um, how Maslow fits into both the equation in terms of uh, the human potential movement, um, the, the, the new age movement, and some of these institutional connections. Uh, it's, it might also be worth noting here to tie back into the HeartMath Institute that um, the human potential movement has also uh, been, uh, been leveraged quite extensively uh, through various multi-level marketing schemes, uh, through various uh, 
you know, so one of the most infamous would be like the Amway Corporation. Uh, and, and through multi-level marketing, basically what you have is this is, this is the corporate angle of it um, is so you achieve self-actualization through in, in the instance of something like Amway through achieving career success by being this entrepreneur, by selling these products. But then also you basically can be a coach to coach other people to sell the products and thereby those people can be self-actualized, not only by consuming the products, but also by selling them. Uh, and if you take that sort of that business model, which is very much used in the HeartMath Institute, right? So the same model, um, they have various wearables one's called m-wave one's called inner balance i think the other one's called something coherence uh and you so you could be a heart math coach and you can sell these products and uh but you can also coach people not just to sell them themselves but how to use them and so they they actually trademark their their breathing techniques which i think is very uh telling you know i mean this whole idea of collective, you know, utopian. It's like, but no, you can't even use my breathing technique uh, unless it's, you know, sanctioned by the company. Uh, but, but in that process, again, right, you're, you're, the, the idea here is that the consumers are achieving self-actualization by using the heart math, uh, the trademark breathing techniques with the wearable, and then they can further be self-actualized by becoming successful economically, making money, and then being this coach that helps other people reach their self-actualization. So that's sort of a nice way to show how the idea of the human potential movement and uh, tr transpersonal psychology gets blended with these ideas of conscious evolution and uh, basically transhumanist wearables. I wonder if they have a difficult time trying to enforce the uh, breathing trademarks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you would think yeah. I would, I, you know, I mean, I don't know how they'd catch you, but I, I suppose one of these days, maybe the, you know, you, you won't be able to take the wearable off and uh, it'll know if, <laughs> if you're using it unauthorized. I suppose I mean, that's it. I suppose you need the wearables or, Maybe a CCTV catches you breathing the wrong way and it, it gets sent into who knows. Um, <laughs> but that's, well, you know, I've, I've, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I've, I've, I've speculated and thought about it. I was totally, you know, surmising here. Uh, but I, I've often wondered, I mean, you know, will, will there come a day when, you know, uh, part of your part of your punishment or part of your correct correction, you know, your, your social credit score goes down because I don't know, you posted something that wasn't politically correct. And then maybe what you have to do is watch a bunch of ads, a bunch of propaganda of, you know, the, the appropriate uh, PC, you know, perception. And you have to watch this thing with this wearable on and you have to keep watching this ad until, until it can tell that you're not irritated by it, until it can tell that you're like amenable to like whatever messaging corporate or government uh, they, they want you to conform to so that they know that you're, you know, that you won't go out there and, and post uh, wrong think again. I mean, it's just something yeah. I thought about, I, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it, if it, if it comes to that one day. That's very interesting. You know, now that you say that they, 
I'm realizing that they could literally monitor you to make sure that you have a change of heart, very literally. <laughs> and, and that was, uh, you know, that was the whole thing in Brave New- or 1984, right? It was not just that. It wasn't enough that when Winston uh, was pulled down into the Ministry of Love and O'Brien's torturing him, it wasn't enough to just say, okay, Brig Brother's good. I, 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 you know, I'm bad. Brig like, no, it's not enough that you say it. When I hold up two fingers and I tell you that it's three, it's not enough that you say it. You have to actually believe it. You have to love Big Brother. So, I mean, it, it basically, right, it's a, it's another, it's a even deeper level of, you know, the control of the mind in the sense that, right, it's not enough that you just sort of go through the motions and, and pretend. Like, they want to know that physiologically does your body sync with it not just do your do your lips make sounds that seem like you agree with it yeah yeah no absolutely that's that's very interesting i hadn't uh i guess sat down and thought far enough through the ramifications of this kind of wearable technology i mean i certainly have thought about it and and read stuff into it but yeah that does kind of take things into a a whole different dimension when it's not just that your submission to the, to the tyrant will be, be enough, but your actual filthy, your, <laughs> you know, you, you, you have to like it. Um, so very, very interesting. Well, well I, wanna, I mean, sorry, I just got to note this. One more thing is that if you haven't seen this, somebody was posting this where, where these people were going through in China uh, you know, with the various social credit, you know, uh, you know, cameras and facial recognition and all that. And one of these little checkpoints, the, 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 this guy goes through and he it scans his face and it makes him smile. It won't open the gate until he's it's not enough that it scanned his face and knew who it was. And, you know, had his checked his social score and all that. He had to smile before it would open the gate. So anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, and, I, and I've seen some of that stuff about, you know, facial recognition technology where they're trying to make it to where, um, you know, it, it can like look at you and tell if you're about to do something naughty that you that you shouldn't be. But yeah, that's that's a very interesting way to look at it that perhaps in the future, um, you know, your heart has to be in what they literally deem to be the the, the right place and, and what have you. Uh, certainly very creepy so before we move too far off of the uh subject of kind of the uh you know spiritual aspects of uh barbara marx hubbard and in the new age movement i meant to uh, ask you about this earlier because i want to get into the club of rome stuff and whatnot here in in just a second but uh I can't remember exactly what it is, but what was this uh, thing with Barbara Marks Hubbard and her experience of Christ consciousness? And was it Buckminster uh, Fuller or who was it who she had the shared Christ consciousness experience with? Yeah, it was Buckminster Fuller. And Buckminster Fuller tells a story where he was, I I believe he was walking around somewhere in Chicago uh, and uh, Supposedly, he a voice spoke to him. He was reflecting on something. I'm, I'm vague on some of the other details. I want to say that he was like very depressed, and then and all of a sudden, this voice speaks to him. I don't remember if he if he saw some sort of an apparition, but definitely a voice spoke to him and said, um, "What you attest to is true, Bucky. You know, you are you are the first mini Christ or something like that." 
uh, yes, Bucky, you are the first mini Christ on earth and what you attest to is true. Uh, and he shared this with her. I don't remember if she mentioned something that she mentioned her Christ consciousness experience first. Um, okay. Let me, here, I'll just read this quote. It says, so it says, Hover explained that, uh, one day I had written this book about the new Testament of an evolutionary Christ. Bucky asked to see me alone. He put his arms around me and he said, darling, I had the same experience and he put his temple onto mine. And I feel he zapped me with the design science revolution. So I guess, you know, when they shared this, this similar experience and they held each other and, uh, and she's saying there's some kind of energy went from his temple into hers and, and sort of imbued her with this, the, the design science revolution would basically be uh, basically uh, Buckminster Fuller's sort of uh, scientific architectural revolution in which uh, you can basically see it as sort of the early uh, sort of um, iterations uh, of, of like a proto sustainable development, right? That he, he believed that, uh, you know, that architecture and industry should, um, should basically move in a direction of, you know, they didn't, it wouldn't have the term sustainable development back then. Uh, but the idea was right. Instead of, you know, profit based, you know, mass production, exploitation of researches for individual profit motives and things that it should be collectivized for the you know evolution of the human species and the stewardship of the planet. And this, you know, that was sort of why and how he came up with um, the whole, you know, if you've ever seen the geodesic dome is probably the most, uh, you know, uh, well-known um, manifestations of his design science concept of, you know, this basically new, new age or, uh, you know, architecture basically. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. And I mean, I, I'm I'm not an expert on what Christ consciousness is. You certainly hear um, some uh, interesting people say it. I, I feel like every time I've heard uh, Christ consciousness mentioned by someone, they they tend to be um, uh, interesting to listen to. Um, but I mean, it's kind of like this idea of like ascending to like a, a higher plane of mind, right? Like yeah, yeah. And so um, I, I find that that kind of interesting you know it, it, when taken in conjunction with you know barbara marks hubbard's idea of the uh, and i mean this goes like with Deschardin and stuff i mean it's kind of like uh this revamp of like what the the uber mensch is going to be and that the way that you get to that superman is by via you know um, basically man merging with the machine, whether that be through wearables as a first step or, you know, later on through a uh, brain machine interface or, or something like that. I mean, kind of like that whole Marshall McLuhan thing that uh, man is going to be the, you know, sex organ of the machine world <laughs> in, in the future or something. So I don't know, very, very interesting stuff. And so, well, Let's, I guess, get into the Club of Rome stuff because the Club of Rome has been on many uh, people's radars and kind of these parapolitical, uh, you know, uh, sphere of, of research. Um, it's certainly something that I've heard mentioned um, about multiple times and, and the limits to growth and, and all of this. 
but I thought that it was um, interesting and very fitting that Hubbard was very much, you know, kind of in this same um, realm of people uh, as the Club of Rome. So can you tell us a little bit about the Club of Rome and how that pertains to Hubbard? Yeah, the Club of Rome was established in 1968. It's basically uh, one of one of many, for lack of a better term, what are, what are known as the Roundtable NGOs. Uh, and basically the, the first of the round tables was, uh, established by Lord Milner, who was part of, uh, Cecil Rhodes's Rhodes Society. Uh, and basically he set up these, um, these round table organizations in various colonies of, uh, of the British empire. Uh, and the, the idea was basically that, uh, to sort of clandestinely manage those colonies, um, you know, through, through, uh, through these, these, uh, organizations, uh, and it sort of worked in tandem with the, the, the Rhodes Trust and the Rhodes Society, which was also basically trying to sort of brain drain the, the best and brightest from the colonial world so that, uh, to in, indoctrinate them into basically Anglophile, you know, pro-British, pro-imperialist, uh, ideologies, uh, and then to send them back to their to their uh, native homes, to their co- colonial uh, uh, nations, and so that they would then basically uh, rule that country uh, in accordance with uh, British favor. And so the the roundtables were basically places where you would meet, uh, convene heads of state and royal families, business leaders, financiers, academics, scientists, etc. And you would get these people together to sort of discuss how to uh, plan in in those instances early on, those, the the national policy of the various colonial powers, or then also, you know, on a broader geopolitical scale, sort of how to coordinate all that in tandem with the agenda of the uh, British empire. And eventually after World War One, what you got was the uh, creation of uh, the Council on Foreign Relations and then the Royal Institute of International Affairs. After that was the Bilderberg Group. And then next was the Club of Rome in 1968. A couple of years later, you had the World Economic Forum. And then uh, a year or two after that, you had the Trilateral Commission. But all of these are basically modeled after that, those early Milner Roundtable groups. And they all effectively serve the same purpose, which is, again, to convene, you know, the, the various uh, oligarchs, heads of state, royal families, business leaders, financiers, etc. cetera, uh, increasingly uh, at moving in the post-war era to effectively, instead of, you know, they shifted the, the agenda from managing, uh, you know, this British imperial project to managing and planning the sort of a globalist project right, to, to plan the uh, the global economy uh, and the Club of Rome sort of uh, arises at a time and largely therefore has been sort of focused on uh, environmentalism right so the, the Club of Rome again is 1968 uh, it's 71 or 72 is when they publish their sort of their seminal piece, which was limits to growth, 
uh, and in limits to growth, they uh, they had a MIT team that ran some computer models on uh, looking at basically you know resource consumption, pollution, uh, grafted over time, and then basically using Malthusian calculations, they, they basically forecasted that you know we'd really be reaching some Malthusian cata- ecological catastrophe from overpopulation and other and, and its various effects on pollution and environmental degradation sometime before the end of the century uh, and so Barbara Marx Hubbard came in contact with uh, one of the founders of the Club of Rome Aurelio Pecci he found he co-founded it with uh, a guy that was part of uh, his name is Alexander Keene he was uh, high up in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. And actually, it's interesting to note that uh, Pecci, at the third annual meeting of the World Economic Forum, which is today one of the most prominent, well-known, and most uh, public-facing of the roundtable organizations, uh, at their third annual meeting, uh, it was uh, Pecci presented the Limits to Growth thesis to uh, the World Economic Forum. This was also the same annual meeting at which uh, Klaus Schwab unveiled his his uh, plan for what is now known as stakeholder capitalism, um, which is a big part of the Great Reset. Um, and this this limits to growth doctrine largely becomes the impetus for sustainable development, which is also a big part of the Great Reset. And one other thing we should note here is that just to show that how these various roundtable organizations don't just have the same historical lineage, but they actually all intersect. Uh, One of the members, the honorary sponsor of that same annual meeting was uh, a member of the founder of the Bilderberg Group. Uh, It was a former Nazi officer by the name of Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands. Um, and if actually I uh, helped to do some research for a, a book written by Michael Rechtenwald, it's called The Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty. And one of the things I did was I pieced together a, a, a table that shows there's 67 uh, overlapping memberships across all of the roundtable organizations that I mentioned in which each uh, 67 members of the World Economic Forum are also uh, simultaneously members of one or more of the other, the other roundtables. So... Uh, Hubbard uh, comes in contact with Pecci and they sort of, uh, they differ a little bit, but they largely agree. So Pecci was, uh, she would say, I guess, was a little too pessimistic for her. So uh, remember that the, the, uh, the title of this is Limits to Growth, right? So emphasis for them on limits. Uh, for Hubbard, she she did believe that, you know, that, you know, uh, to use Buckminster Fuller's term, that we were on spaceship Earth, that it's, you know, it's a finite space, that there's limited resources, that you can't just, you know, uh, let the profit motive uh, drive the the, uh, the extraction and ultimate extinction of natural resources, that you, there does have to be some collective effort to steward to steward all that. But she uh, was far more optimistic that things like space exploration and genetics and nanotech and and biotech, that these these, uh, advances in technology would enable us to either extract more resources from off planet or to be uh, maybe re-engineer the human body in ways that it could could, uh, use resources more efficiently. Uh, And so she thought that, that there should be less of a hardcore Malthusian uh, 
outlook in terms of less emphasis on controlling or regulating population, less less emphasis on uh, micromanaging resource extraction, uh, production and consumption, and more of an emphasis on developing or growing right economic technological growth in ways that would enable uh, the human species to to use uh, the environment more efficiently. So they so they sort of disagreed, but they ultimately uh, they ultimately did agree that you know on the main Malthusian premise or neo Malthusian premise that, that we did have to. Even with, uh, you know, best case scenario, even with all those advances in science and technology that you, you still had to have some collective effort to, to manage uh, the environment. Yeah, the, the, the Malthusians and the Neo-Malthusians are an interesting bunch because you'd think that they would realize after a while, whether it be Malthus himself or if it be like a more modern day guy like uh, Paul Ehrlich, the population bomb guy or something, their predictions aren't haven't only been wrong; they've been incredibly wrong um, so far. Um, so I, I don't know. They're they're certainly an interesting uh, uh, group. But you also talk a little bit about this because you talk about the Club of Rome stuff, I believe, in your second article in this series, and you also talk about Maurice Strong, which I learned about him maybe two or three years back. I had um, watched a video by a Corbett report by James Corbett and I had learned about him but I haven't um, done all that much research into him but then I saw him come back up in in this article and uh, it was very interesting so um, who is Mari Strong and why does he factor into into this story yeah he he was uh very important uh, I, re- I remember yeah back in the day right he he, he was uh, talked about quite a bit. Uh, by people like Corbin and others. Uh, of course, he's dead now, so I guess perhaps that's part of the reason why he's not in the spotlight like it used to be. But um, yeah, he, he was super important in all things in uh, UN sustainable development. So so I so I think I mentioned earlier that Strong was he he fed up, he set up the first environmental conference of the United Nations. It was the uh, UN environment uh, UN conference on the human environment. And that was the same exact year <clears throat> that Limits to Growth was published. As a result of that meeting, the UNEP, United Nations Environmental Program, was created. Strong becomes the first executive director. Then, in about 1980, mid 80s, 85, 86, 87, something like that, uh, he would be a key player in setting up uh, and convening what was called the uh, World Commission on Environment and Development. Uh, it was another United Nations conference. And this is where, this is where most scholars trace the, uh, the coining of the term sustainable development. There was actually, there's actually one um, white paper that the UN published in, in tandem with uh, the World Wildlife Fund maybe a year or so before that, but it, but it was this world commission on environment and development that basically popularized it. It was after this, uh, the WCED also known as the Brundtland commission, because it was, uh, headed up by, uh, a, a woman named grow Harlem Brundtland, uh, who was also, uh, I think director general or some other high up official at the world 
health organization later on. Uh, but this is where the, the term sustainable development basically becomes uh, this, this term that would drive policy. And uh, that was 1987, to be, uh, to be specific. And a few years later, 1991 or 1992, it's 1992, um, which is 20 years after uh, Limbs to Growth was published, also 20 years after uh, the UNCHE uh, was convened, you had the Rio Earth Summit Conference, a UN conference in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And this is what kicked off Agenda 21, uh, which basically took, which basically took the, um, um, the concept of sustainable development and sort of laid out a policy program through Agenda 21. But 1992 was also the same exact year that uh, the Club of Rome published Beyond the Limits, basically the sequel to uh, the Limits to Growth book. And the subtitle for that is Confronting Global Collapse, Envisioning a Sustainable Future. So they're also adopting the sustainable development language. So again, what you see is 20 years set apart, Maurice Strong convenes to, to the key UN environmental conferences the, during the exact same years that the Club of Rome published their uh, first and second installments on limits to growth. So what you see is an, what appears to be uh, a level of coordination. Now, Strong himself was also a member of the World Economic Forum's foundation board, and um, it, he was also... Uh, set up something called um, the Earth Council. Yeah, he set up the Earth Council, okay? And it was Mikhail Gorbachev who set up uh, something similar called Green Cross International. The two of those institutions would be combined together into something that uh, is now known as Earth Charter, which collaborates with the United Nations, uh, and it was uh, it was Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands who was uh, a member of the perhaps is and I think she I think she's still alive but she's a Bilderberger, uh, and it was her who put Gorbachev and Strong uh, in touch with each other. Now Gorbachev himself was a member of the Club of Rome, and so was um, um, or is. Uh, Queen Beatrix, right? So, so again, what you see here is sort of uh, coordination between members of the Club of Rome, members of the World Economic Forum, and basically the 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 institutional infrastructure of the United Nations and their sustainable development projects. So, so strong is basically right at the epicenter, right at the nexus at which these various roundtables in the UN come together in pushing uh, the sustainable development. Agenda. Uh, one other thing we could note about uh, Strong, which I which I think I touched on earlier, is that he was uh, also on the, um, the the global advisory board of the World Future Society with Barbara Marks Hubbard. Uh, she actually co-founded uh, the World Future Society, and then they all these these well at least Strong, Gorbachev, and Hubbard, they all come together again through something called the State of the World Forum, which is 
basically another roundtable, lesser known. It was convened and set up by Gorbachev. Uh, it's no longer in uh, operation. I think it ended the year that the uh, UN Millennium Development Goals uh, were launched or, or the year that the, the MDGs became the SDGs. I, I, the, the particular date escapes me, but it was, it was in tandem with some significant um, uh, uh, development in, in the evolution of the MDGs to the SDGs. Um, and what was in, in, important or unique about um, the state of the world forum was that it not, not only did it emphasize um, environmental projects, sustainable development, and actually had many, uh, uh, many participants were themselves uh, part of the UN various uh, environmental program and other UN agencies. Uh, but there was a, very large slew of new age folk who were directly uh, connected with Hubbard. Some of them she referred to as her, uh, you know, her birth 2012 allies or her other allies of conscious evolution. Some of those being, uh, I think, um, Naisbit, yeah, John Naisbit, uh, Lynn Twist, Hazel Henderson, Deepak Chopra, Michael Murphy, that gets us back to Esselin, the guy that uh, co-founded Esselin, Stanislav Groth, Gene Houston. Um, and so, um, so, so that's, so th that's the ways that uh, we're, we're strong and Hubbard, uh, the club of Rome and the UN sort of all, all come together. Very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting how Hubbard, I mean, I, I've known for a while that there is some sort of correlation between these, you know, whole UN sustainable development and the depopulation and the transhumanism. And so it's very interesting when you have a character like Hubbard who brings all these different spheres in together, as well as, you know, the, the New Age spirituality aspect of it which there does seem to be um something still definitely going on there i mean you mentioned depop depok chopra who is a you know a very large figure in that world and um i, I think his name's like sad guru or something like that i think that he recently just spoke at the world economic forum in the past year or two like that maybe maybe i'm mistaken so um very very interesting and it's interesting too because um, some of these new age spirituality figures you see start to play kind of a role in the um, alternative media or in alternative circles or something like that. But then at the other hand, you know, they're also involved with this whole uh, uh, world of people. So it's kind of interesting when you see that uh, that that convergence. Yeah, yeah, no, um, I, I'm. I, I want to look that up on Sadhguru because uh, he, you know, I'm, I'm didn't hear about that, but um, highly, highly promoted, heavily promoted. Right. Uh, um, and, he, and he sort of, in many ways um, you could say sort of fits, fits the bill or sort of the, you know, the new generation of, you know, uh, some of the people that we've sort of mentioned, I mean, you know, in sort of the, the milieu of Chopra, uh, I saw not too long ago, uh, Chopra was interviewed by Bill Maher. And it was interesting that one of the things he noted was that he had a meeting with um, somebody in Saudi Arabia. I don't know if it was, uh, it was somebody high up in the government. Um, 
Oh, it was the minister of artificial intelligence. And he wanted to uh, work with him to develop an AI chatbot that would help uh, talk people out of committing suicide. So it's just interesting, again, that you see here uh, someone like Chopra, who, you know, is sort of, yeah, he's, he's a, a sort of a new age syncretistic humanist, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, promoting these, you know, sort of spiritual or natural, you know, uh, means of, you know, achieving, I guess, you know, we, we can call it a, a method of self-actualization. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of people who critiqued, uh, I actually had a sort of a debate with some people that were, uh, uh, colleagues of Hubbard who uh, uh, disagreed on some of the stuff that I, that I wrote about and we had a back and forth on it, which was good. And they were, they're nice people. And uh, you know, it was a, it was a productive dialogue. It wasn't a, wasn't a tomato throwing contest or anything, but it, one of the things that they seemed to not be able to kind of come to terms with was that for them, they, they, they were under the impression on, from their experience and uh, with Hubbard and in the, in the, human potential movement and the new age and all these various intersecting movements that are all sort of, you know, flavors of the same, same thing, uh, that, that technology, you know, AI, uh, you know, biotech, nanotech, uh, brain computer interfaces, wearables, that all this stuff was not part of, you know, what they understood to be the new age in, in the human potential movement. But I mean, here we have another example in Chopra where, um, you know, clearly, you know, he's not just telling you to meditate and breathe. I mean, like his solution to, you know, the problems of suicide are to have an AI chatbot. I mean, that doesn't sound to me like, you know, the classically the most spiritual, you know, method of, you know, dealing with whatever, uh, whatever issues you might you might have, but it, it's just it's just another illustration of the ways in which, you know, I don't think you can really divorce uh, the new age from the from the transhuman at this point. Like honestly, in my in my analysis, uh, if 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 the two were ever on different paths, the the the, the trajectories at this point are so interwoven that you. If you're on the new age uh, train, you know, those tracks are going to, they're going to end uh, at the, the station where uh, transhumanism is, is the, uh, is the destination, basically. Uh, I mean, in another way, you could say that is, uh, you know, if, if transhumanism can be reduced to sort of technological determinism or, or biotechnological determinism, in other words, that, you know, the evolution of the human species is determined by its genetic evolution and then the way that that can be guided and enhanced or manipulated with technology and that our, that our destiny as a, you know, as a species is, is determined by the way those two things act in a materialist sense. But if you think of the new age and this idea of consciousness and conscious evolution, Christ consciousness, which are, which are all in many ways, if you ask me, very amorphous, vague terms, because like, what is this consciousness, right? Consciousness is basically the nominative ver uh, form of, a, of an adjective, right? Right. It's, it's uh, the, the, uh, the suffix ness, 
added to the root conscious makes it a noun, but if, but the root itself is just an adjective. So right, it's describing something without identifying uh, an actual phenomena. And so at the at best, what it's reducible to is this this idea of like vibrations and energies, right? Most people when they talk about when you, when you raising your consciousness means raising your vibrations or raising your energies like people almost always use these terms like interchangeably and you can sort of see an example of that with something like heart math right so you're raising your consciousness through the wearable but the way that you change your consciousness through the wearable is by getting your biorhythms to be at a particular frequency or a particular vibration meaning that the that the the mind or the the state of consciousness with you know the inner monologue the inner dialogue you have with yourself the experience within your head that is that can uh, be said to be your consciousness that's actually just a secondary result of the way in which the electrical signals in your body uh, are vibrating through your heart and waves and your brain waves which means that at that point basically your consciousness is a vibrational determinant uh, is is a vibrational determinacy, right? That your consciousness is determined by, in other words, electrical frequencies. Well, if your if your consciousness can be reduced to electrical frequencies, in other words, vibrations, then we're not saying anything differently from saying that your human biology, that the evolution of your of the human species, is determined by technology because the way that you would manipulate the electrical frequencies or the vibrations is through the technologies that manipulate the frequencies. So it's all basically the same thing. You're just, one is emphasizing more of the, uh, the biochemical apparatus. Another is emphasizing the hardware that transmit the signal. And another is, is emphasizing the signal or the, or the vibration itself, but all of it ultimately has the same destination. Yeah, yeah. And if it all is, you know, determinant, then uh, what difference does it make to have higher or lower? I mean, what what does it even even matter? But um, anyways, that's a uh, that that is very interesting. And I did just quickly Google it just to make sure that I'm not spreading disinformation, even though I'm sure that there's plenty of people out there who would say that uh, I do anyways. But anyhow, uh, Sadhguru did go to speak at Davos. And <laughs> it said that this was after a decade that he returned to center stage. So I guess that he's been two times um, over the past um, 10 years. And it was on February 22nd. The summit was special as it was the 50th anniversary. And he got a personal invitation from Klaus Schwab. Here, Sadhguru championed the One Trillion Trees platform, a major new initiative led by the United Nations Environment Program and their Food and Agriculture Organization. So um, I don't know any of the specific details, but I just remember when I saw that real briefly, I didn't do any diving into what he talked about or listened to the speech or anything like that. But I found it incredibly interesting and um because like I've also seen Sadhguru go on shows like Russell Brand's show, where he's also you know talked against the the Great Reset and the um, you know I, I saw a clip a while back of him talking about the article by from the World Economic Forum where it says you'll own nothing and, and you'll be happy and he was being critical of it and so then I thought it was kind of interesting when he had Sadhguru on, which I'm not saying anything about Russell Brand that he's like disinformation or, or anything like you know I mean I I don't know and that's you know uh, 
I'm not even particularly interested. I just thought that it was interesting that you have this guy like Russell Brand, who is at least purportedly, you know, kind of in the alternative camp of things. You know, he's been kind of questioning some of the things about the uh, uh, the vaccination policies and the World Economic Forum and and different stuff like this. But then he goes and has Sadhguru on on his show, and so. Um, when I was reading your article and I figured out that Deepak Chopra was, you know, involved with, you know, some of the weird stuff in, in this sphere, and both of them are both pretty heavily promoted, especially Sadhguru as of recent, um, you know, you, you can hardly uh, get on YouTube or something like that with the algorithm, uh, without the algorithm trying to promote him. Uh, but so, yeah, anyways, uh, very interesting stuff, and it seems like that this uh where the new age and the fourth industrial revolution dovetail um it's not just like this uh, uh small uh connection that there is that you kind of have to like strain uh to to find but i mean it's it's pretty apparent once you start to to see it there so anyways well, interesting yeah. stuff and and you know I and I'm not going to put you on the spot on your show. I mentioned any you know particular programs or anything, but uh, you know I'll, I'll just say that you know you sort of see like the this dialectic between sort of like the Great Reset and like the Great Awakening, and you know within that whole you know the, the broader this concept of the Great Awakening, you have a lot of New Age. Uh, themes and you know sort of spokespeople and things like that and you know it's it, you can't help but look at it and surmise that perhaps it's just you know a, a dialectical maneuver to sort of right I mean that if you're going to resist a great reset we've got this sort of this new age thing over here that eventually sort of is gonna you know comes back around and ends up in the same uh in the same sort of uh, destination, right? I mean, I think a lot of some of the esoteric stuff that, you know, I mean, uh, over the last, you know, I guess decades, right? I mean, you know, the, in the truth movement or whatever you want to call, you know, the, the people who look at crypto politics and, and, and things like that, uh, that, you know, in many ways, the idea of sort of the anticipation of the new age, um, as a spiritual epic, as opposed to, you know, just a, a new uh, economic uh, industrial revolution that it, it, it certainly uh, could, could have been, and it seems to have been leveraged to sort of take, uh, take dissenting energies, take dissenting perspectives, right. That should be directed towards, uh, you know, a particular type of, civil reform and sort of radicalizing uh, people in, into, you know, I mean, you could see sort of some of the culminations and like some of the, the QAnon stuff, uh, which had a lot of, you know, sort of new age themes. Uh, so it could be very useful that the anticipation of a new age could sort of, you could, you could garner that momentum to help actually drive the destabilization necessary to upend, you know, our traditions and institutions to usher in this great reset. Yeah, no, you're not, you're not putting me on the spot at all. And I actually, I pretty much completely agree with that, if not completely agree with it. I do think that there is definitely a dialectic 
in place um you know between yeah the the great reset and this great awakening that is 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 happening and i say is happening in, in quotations because um you know I, de- I definitely meet people who are uh figuring out about this stuff in in real life but also i mean so many of the people who i meet in real life who are are talking about these uh you know things like like the great reset and stuff they're also you know buying into like the QAnon psyop type end of of things as well um you know so i, I definitely do think that that there is a is a dialectic in place and you know uh maybe uh you know the the synthesis is going to be something that is uh, not necessarily between the two but that incorporates aspects of of the two and you know as far as you know some of the stuff is in concerns to a, a, a great awakening is well what better place to put a lie than in between a couple of truths you know um it makes it more believable or something like that and so um you know, not not saying that things are, are hopeless or, or anything like that, but um, it's definitely good to uh, be skeptical of, of some of the people who you encounter who are who are talking about these things and not even necessarily because they're a, a bad actor or something, but just because some of these ideas that are being promulgated and are running so rampant um don't come from the places that you think. And I mean, uh, like something that I think about um, a lot is like you look at the 60s counterculture and you have all these people like the the, the Timothy Learys and and stuff like this or like the Ken Keseys. And uh, you, you do just a little bit of digging and you see all these kinds of weird connections that that they have, um, you know, whether it be to the to the CIA or stuff. And I mean, all these groups that we're talking about are very much interested in uh, perception management and controlling any kind of opposition that that there is. And so, I mean, it's, you know, naive to think that, you know, whether it be um, intentional or through some kind of subversion or if it just be through, you know, these ideas get put out there um, by bad actors and then they get picked up by by well-meaning people uh, uh, there's definitely stuff to be uh, uh, to, to try to be attentive to, or something. I don't know if that was very clear. As kind of yeah, yeah, no, no, and and I, I I'll, I'll just add that you know one of the things that I sort of debated uh, with Hubbard's colleagues were their their main position was that because they read the articles, <laughs> so they seen that you know she she was around all these people, you know, uh, and all these institutions and all these various movements that they admittedly were not, uh, you know, were not necessarily supporters of. So they they said that um, that she was naive, that she was she was well intentioned, and she was naive, and that you know that she uh, they, they basically, they being, you know, Club of Rome and, uh, you know, the various, you know, oligarchs like, such as Rockefeller and at the UN and things like that, they used her, or the, you know, sort of put a spiritual veneer over their technocratic transhumanist agenda. Uh, but, but at the same time, honestly, you know, during that conversation, they also suggested that 
uh, that the Club of Rome was started with good intentions, which, you know, I had to, you know, uh, disagree and, you know, provide <laughs> documentation of like the first thing they published was actually some of the, you know, they, their argument was that they move, they have since moved into this sort of, you know, technocratic Malthusian uh, uh, bent. But actually, they were more explicitly so uh, at, at the beginnings. And so uh, one of the things that, that I wanted to ask um, or rebut uh, during that dialogue, which didn't, didn't happen because it was like a whole panel of people and it was me and I didn't want to, I wanted to sort of jump in and, and, and get this one in, but I didn't want to, you know, be, be that guy, right? I, I didn't want to come off as like combative or contentious. So I just, I just waited my turn and it never, never got a chance to bring it up. But one of the things that I wanted to ask them was, well, do you think Klaus Schwab has good intentions? Like, and probably a lot of these people, if you sat them down and talked to them, they probably, they probably did or do. And so uh, whether or not, I mean, there's two, two points to make there. I mean, one is that uh, in some ways, you know, the, the intentions and the outcomes, you know, the, the intentions can't override the outcomes. Uh, and if you're that deeply embedded in these, with these various institutions, um, you know, even if you're naive at a certain point, doesn't quite it's not really an excuse right i mean like i don't you you know if it's one or you sort of rub elbows with a person here or there uh and you know you give them the benefit of the doubt and or or maybe you want to try to leverage the platform you're trying to be diplomatic and strategic okay but at a certain point i mean i'm you know we've been going for a while here i named quite a few super prominent people in some of the most nefarious organizations and agendas that she was very closely tied to uh, if you're still naive at that point, you know, uh, it's sort of a moot, it's sort of a moot point, but it also does illustrate sort of what you're touching on is that, uh, you know, it's very easy for people to, uh, jump on any of these various, uh, uh, movements under the impression that perhaps they are going to be beneficial for humanity. Perhaps they are part of a countercultural movement and perhaps, uh, perhaps, you know, whether, whether that cultural, uh, countercultural movement is entirely, you know, sort of, uh, astroturfed, uh, or is it, you know, somehow co-opted, uh, it's, you know, it, it gets, it becomes difficult to sort of, to, to, uh, untangle it all. And so you want to try to give people the benefit of the doubt that, you know, you want to, you, you know, you want to, if, if people seem to be attempting something with, with good intentions, you want to sort of, uh, you know, give them a little bit of grace there. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we have to be extremely skeptical and extremely sort of uh, have our radars out there that uh, even the most organic and genuine of, of, a, of a movement with the best intentions for the best outcomes uh, is, is easily sort of co-opted and, and pulled into this, uh, in, into the larger program, especially nowadays with the, the advent of social media, where they can basically break down, not just, they, they can see not just 
uh, the momentum of a particular movement, but they can look at it in terms of the demographics. Like, like, is it mainly right-wing people or left-wing people? Or is it a particular ethnic population? Is it a particular age population? They can look at the lingo, like the buzzwords, the rhetoric that they use, and they can take those buzzwords and they can use their, uh, you know, mastery of propaganda and rhetorical manipulation uh, and, and, and to basically target those demographics with, with a marketing campaign that spins what those buzzwords are and then repackages them to steer it into, uh, you know, whether it be their great reset or their fourth industrial revolution. Um, so, you know, I think that was probably a bit of a rant myself, but I, I, it's, I think it's important to point out because, you know, after reading, writing this book and been doing this research, you know, I try to, I try to be, uh, I try to talk to everybody and, and, you know, give everybody the benefit of the doubt, regardless of what, you know, what demographic or what political, spiritual, religious, social ideology they come from. Um, and, you know, try to try to be diplomatic and work with them. But, uh, you know, it's it can be hard to uh, to, to to have a clear uh, sense of, of where you stand with, you know, certain certain people, certain movements, certain groups. Um, and you don't, and you don't want to get caught up in sort of everybody's controlled opposition, right? Cause then you can't even have a conversation. So it's, a, uh, it's a conundrum that I think is important to, 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 for all of us to think about and be aware of, right? Like we could talk about, you know, everything historical and, and in terms of the current machinations and how things are moving and where we're anticipating. But at some point, you know, to, to muster any sort of, uh, you know, resistance uh we do have to sort of you know we do have to uh dialogue and 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 you know uh collaborate and things and uh so it's just it's uh it's it's a sort of a a, a tangled web that uh requires attention yeah absolutely yeah and, and and i don't recommend that people go about devouring one another and get it too much into the uh, finger pointing game i mean every once in a while perhaps somebody deserves to have the finger pointed at them but a lot of the times it's not useful um but i think that uh i guess more what i'm saying is just that uh you know i it's something i try to have myself and i know that at times that i don't um but it, it's just, you know, have discernment, uh, whether that be when it comes to the, uh, you know, machinations of the elite or whether that be spiritual discernment. Because I don't know, um, perhaps if you hear a voice that says, Bucky, you're a mini Christ, uh, maybe you shouldn't go <laughs> necessarily believing that. Maybe you should try and implement some spiritual discernment. Uh you know, so um, and 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 discernment can be harder to come by than it would it would maybe seem. But I think that that is something that is um, lacking from a lot of people. And not to say that I'm on my high horse and that I uh, totally have have discernment. But uh, I mean, it's kind of like a, I don't remember what the uh, documentary's name was, but I believe that. Um, it was either you or one of the people when you went on Recluse's show. I listened to your interview uh, with Recluse, and I just had him not on too long ago. Um, but um, someone mentioned that there was a documentary where Barbara Marks Hubbard and Alex Jones and David Icke and all these different people. Thrive. What was that? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut. Thrive is the name of the documentary. Yeah. Thrive. Yes, Thrive. Um, 
you, you know, and I mean, so, I mean, and, and there's no point in getting into, you know, I, I mean, we already have talked enough about, you know, Barbara Mark, Marks Hubbard, but, you know, with, you know, the, those other people. But I mean, the, the point being is that the sometimes people like this or whether it be intentionally or unintentionally are brought into the, uh, the, the truth community. And so, I mean, there's really no other um, option except um you know, to, to try and have some sort of a, a sense of discernment. But anyways, um, we've been talking for a while. There is a couple more things that I would uh, like to ask you about. And so the first is you talked a little bit about the World Future Society and the human potential movement and the foundation for conscious evolution. Um, and you said in uh, the your second article that you were going to in one of the next parts talk about how these are connected to alleged networks of pedophilia and sexual abuse cults. And so um, I understand if uh, you would like to save that for your next article series and you don't want to let the, the cat out of the bag. But I believe when I listened to your interview with recluse um, that I heard somebody mention uh, connections to the finders cult or something. Am, am I mistaken there? Or is there anything you're willing to talk about as far as that goes? I'd also love to have you back on after that part and we could just wait till then. Yeah. I mean, um, so I, I think, so that was probably the episode that uh, John Brisson was on with me. And um, I believe, yeah, I believe that what he said was that, uh, and I've heard this from other people, haven't had a chance to dig up any primary sources on this. So I can't confirm or deny, honestly, but I can't confirm it. Um, you, you might have John Brisson on, he, he, he might be able to, uh, he might have the source on this, but I, but I believe it was from him and from others uh, that supposedly um, Marion Petty, who uh, was the head of the finders cult that he was either a co-founder or on the board, or he had it was some, some high up position and he was somehow involved in the world future society. Um, and like I said, I mean, I need to, I need to pin that down. I, I, I plan to dig into that lead. And when I go into that uh, article, but I haven't been able to find that yet. Of course, I haven't spent that much time uh, looking for it yet either uh you you maybe we'll come back before we end and i'll mention sort of the the rabbit holes i had to go through to uh try to confirm that that uh, pale horse quote uh that hubbard uh allegedly wrote and actually i just the other day um i was able to track it down it, it actually so in my article what i had written was that uh the best i could find was sort of an email exchange between her and somebody where she basically admits to it, but uh, says that, that she disavowed it, um, but couldn't verify the email. And I, a friend of mine uh, put me in contact with um, Constance Cumby, uh, and she wrote The Hidden Dangers of the Rainbow, it was an excellent scholar on uh, all things New Age, one of the early uh, Christian writers to um, expose the New Age in, in basically the 80s. And uh, I guess I guess Hubbard used to used to go to these workshops and print these these little like workbook 
uh, documents and she gave me, uh, she emailed me the one, uh, and it's actually titled, uh, it was published in 1983, which is many years before the actual book of co-creation. It was published by the foundation for co-creation. I'm wondering if that's the same, if she just, if that's the same foundation as the foundation for conscious evolution and she changed the name of it when uh, Lawrence gave her money or not, but the, the original title is the revelation alternative to Armageddon. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to post that somewhere eventually here, uh, real soon, but I sort of, I sort of veered away from your, your comment there. So Marion Petty, um, is from what I've heard, allegedly, uh, involved in either the founding, uh, or the, or the, uh, administration of the, of the world future society. Um, but you know, then you had other people like, uh, Ben Gertzel, who, um, either an author for the for the futurist which is their uh, publication or was otherwise involved with uh the world future society and yeah, obviously this guy you know is funded by uh jeffrey epstein um and so that sort of gives us another uh another sort of uh, window into some of these networks um there was also the person who took over uh, her foundation for conscious evolution, uh, this guy named Mark Gaffney, uh, and y'all, there's a Dr. Phil episode on, on his, um, um, involvement with, uh, I believe the, the, the girl was 13 or 14 or something like that. Uh, and he, he basically admits it. I mean, if you watch the, if you watch the Dr. Phil interviews, <laughs> you know, he, it's, it's like he's trying to defend himself, but he's not. He's just making himself look worse. Um, and another another one, um, another lead. Uh, like I said, I need to flesh these out. And I believe that it's a little more uh, uh, that the, 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 the web is more tangled than, than I'm sort of alluding to here. But uh, one of the people in Hubbard's she wrote a book called birth 2012 and beyond. Uh, and she's got a list of people in the back that she calls her allies of her birth 2012 campaign and some others that she calls her, uh, uh transformational leadership council allies or something to that effect. But there's a list of these people. And one of them is Nancy Salzman, Nancy Salzman being the head of the Nexium cult. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Nexium cult obviously used, um, for, for those who don't know, if you do any research on it, they used, uh, a version of basically, um, human potential movement techniques. And they're basically, they're, you know, sort of group shaping group psychology and their little workshops where they would sort of brainwash people. It was the, the version of the human potential movement is the es i think it's called est it's like air hard i always forget the name of it it's like air hard some Siemens something it's it's, it's just a, it's just a play on the, the hpm um but 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 what's interesting another another lead there is that um um you know recently in the news we saw the dalai lama thing with the yeah, <laughs> top it's up my tongue. I mean, uh, and I had a, I had a bit of an ink, you know, because, so he showed up at, at one of those Nexium 
um, one of those Nexium, um, you know, uh, seminars or whatever you want to call them. Him and Keith Raniere. There's pictures of the Dalai Lama with Keith Raniere, and one of Charlotte Thompson Iserbeet's friends. Charlotte Iserbeet was uh, she's my mentor. She died last year. Wrote the forward to my book. Was worked under the Reagan administration. Was a leaked blue whistle on something called Project Best. Uh, she's she's the woman that leaked the her, her parents were uh, her dad and grandpa were members of the Order of Skull and Bones. She leaked the address books. I actually own them now. She gave them to me. Uh, and a friend of hers named. Chris Chandler wrote a book called Enthralled, and it's all about it, the whole book. It's a thick thing. I've got it. I've never really looked through it. I'll be doing that soon. It's a book about the Dalai Lama uh, and or and that whole you know that his his sect of Tibetan Buddhism and their involvement in basically cult activities. Which, if if uh, if I'm correct, the the book also alleges. Uh, Basically, you know, the, the, the sex abuse, right, with with children, uh, and so when I saw that in the news, I was like, oh, well, I guess, I guess that's, I guess I'll definitely be uh, following that lead. I wasn't, you know, I, I'd heard that and I'd seen the book, and it just seemed so kind of like out there, like I'd never really heard heard anything about the Dalai Lama like that before, and so, uh, but there you have him, right on camera. Uh, I mean, come on. Yeah. Um, Sorry, but but somehow Maurice Strong is tied into that. Uh, Interesting. It, 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 somehow, so this this so Chris Chandler who wrote the book. Maybe I should because this is all stuff that I haven't. I, I feel much more confident speaking on public record after I've written and cited things, because so I know that what I'm saying I documented. But from what I remember, Maurice Strong was somehow involved. Uh, in the this, uh, I guess, cult compound commune, whatever you want to call it, where where she was at uh, in is in the United States, and that in, that involved these this uh, the network around the Dalai Lama somehow. Um, and actually, there was a it might even be I might even have it uh, up here. There was. Won't pull up. Um, there was a compound. Maurice Strong and his wife had this compound that was um, funded by Lawrence Rockefeller. And I'm, I, it, I'd have to look closer, but I'm. It sounded like it was the same one. It sounded like it was the same compound. And I remember, I think on the picture, like uh, on the website. Um, there was pictures of uh, Dalai Lama and other people like that. So that's those are some those are some of the leads that I have that I need to uh, I need to pin down. And um, you know if we if we if we go with the whole the way that sort of Salzman and Nexium kind of uh, combines or, or or sort of circles into this whole web, uh, then we have you know the uh, I'm pretty sure the Bronfmans are involved. Were involved in the Nexium cult. The Bronfmans were also involved uh, with Epstein. So I mean, you know, if you if you follow one of these uh, characters and their and or their organization, and you and you follow it, you'll come back to you'll you'll come full circle, right? It's not just that you know these people were sort of in this orbit, but this. Uh, the, the orbit sort of loops back around itself in, in ways in which it seems 
to demonstrate some sort of a network or a pattern, uh, right? As opposed to just sort of, you know, haphazardly or by coincidence, all of these sex cults and other sex abusers uh, just happen to sort of, you know, end up rubbing shoulders or having to be in the same place or at the same institution. When, when you see those, those overlaps happen in multiple ways, sort of like I illustrated with the club, with the round tables in the UN strong, what you, what you appears to, to reveal is a pattern with some level of either collaboration, coordination, or at least uh, knowledge of, you know, the, the, the ways in which those, those uh, sort of operate in tandem. Absolutely. Yeah. It was Claire Bronfman who was involved with the, the Nexium stuff okay. and uh, yeah, the, you know, uh, but anyways, yeah, that's, that's all very interesting. Um, and I wrote down John Brisson's name. I might just have to, uh, try and get in contact with with him but um i also think was it the world future society where he was naming off all these people and like stanley kubrick and arthur c clark were involved with the world future society yeah yeah that's another one arthur c clark and there's uh, there's a lot of um speculation allegations about- yeah <laughs> yeah um so there's so there's that one as well there's there's others um but those were the, the few that I that I could remember off the top of my head. Uh, I was just going to make sure you already knew about that one because I was going to help out if I uh, knew anything. But yeah, there's all kinds of allegations about Arthur Clark after he moved to Sri Lanka. And that's all very interesting, you know, considering that uh, he initially wrote the book, uh, that 2001 A Space Odyssey, the film that Kubrick did was, you know, uh, based off of, and he maybe was even involved with, you know, the screenplay and stuff. But then later on, Kubrick would go on to make the Eyes Wide Shut movie, you know, which is kind of about um, elite sex parties and, um, you know, some kind of depraved stuff like that. So um, enough to make one kind of scratch their head and go, hmm, I wonder. Um, but anyhow, his first book was low. Or his his first movie he made was Lolita, which is a which is the film version of the the Nabokov book, which is basically a book about a pedophile and his sort of this narrative about his you know attraction or whatever you want to call it to to this to this little girl. Uh, so it's just you know from the beginning to the end, he began his first film in the, in the Nabokov book was really creepy. And there was a lot of people in college that I noticed like the, the, the te- teachers would assign it. And there was people that like read it and, you know, it was just the creepiest book to me. And I, I was just always strange that it, like, it wasn't just one or two. It was a lot of people that liked that book, but I sort of digress. Uh, it's yeah. It's, it's interesting themes there with, Kubrick and you know the whole space odyssey thing is basically I mean it's it's a transhumanist narrative but it's it's entirely masonic as well and I, you know there's there's tons of masonic symbols uh throughout that entire thing I mean the whole thing is basically the 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 narrative about you know sort of becoming the the star child the god man through the evolution of technology and uh, so yeah yeah ab- absolutely and uh you know, I haven't read the the Arthur Clarke book, but um, 
There's also another book that Arthur Clarke wrote, and I can't remember the name of it, and I'm, I'm going to butcher what it's about. Um, I think I maybe read Michael Hoffman, a book by him where he mentions it. But um, he basically has this book where like aliens come to Earth, but they're like essentially like demons and stuff. Childhood like that. End. Childhood's End. That is right. Yeah. yeah, that's psychotic too. Yeah, basically the yeah the aliens once they reveal themselves, they they're basically right devils, right? They got the horns and the hooves and all that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So just all all very interesting. How once you kind of start, you know talking about certain people you can't throw a stone any which way without hitting a, a creeper or something like that um yeah. very interesting well, and you know that the un recently if it's been going around i had to look at it, i said this can't be real it, apparently some they have some initiative or they're or they're promoting or collaborating with some initiative that basically it says something to the effect of i mean to, to put it bluntly, it basically is trying to make the argument that uh, for basically no age of consent, right? It basically made made some argument that you know that your that the the age of consent in your country might not actually be you know the ethical age of consent, uh, and so you know um, in, in, in at the same time that we're seeing right what we're seeing in the schools and. Uh, you know, with I, I, there was somebody that posted something on on Twitter, uh, pictures of some of these textbooks or these these uh, manual, whatever you want to call these things that apparently grade school kids are looking at, and uh, I, I I couldn't believe that it was real, but I wasn't gonna try to find out by searching it anywhere because I would I wouldn't even search that in my uh, in my my browser like even if i look up something on epstein you know it'd be like epstein scandal like i you know but some of the it was basically you know cartoon pornography so i mean you, you're seeing you know like institutions like the un sort of playing fast and loose with the age of consent and you're seeing schools basically basically essentially effectively sexualizing children uh, all at the same time that you have the rise of this new age ethos and, you know, it just happens to be, I mean, you know, we just pointed out several people uh, that have some very questionable at best uh, connections to, you know, sex cults and sex abuse. Uh, you know, you, you have to wonder then if if those things uh, are not coincidental or if, right, that the, the institutional manifestations that we see in the UN and the schools somehow, you know, derives back from some of these figures and some of the ways that they've influenced, uh, uh, you know, global geopolitics, global governance institutions and education. And one of the people in the, the Hubbard article I wrote, uh, his uh, name was Robert Mueller, uh, not the guy that did the whole Trump investigation. This is a different guy. He was a uh, was assistant secretary general of the United Nations. He he uh, was the assistant to Kurt Waldheim, who was actually a, uh, was a Nazi prior to being the secretary general. Uh, and he came up with something called the World Core Curriculum. Um, and so you know Robert Mueller, being you know big New Ager guy, uh, Hubbard's Hubbard's pal. Uh, was basically had a global curriculum for schools. So, you know, uh, it's not, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't surprise me if when I write this piece, I somehow find that, you know, some of the influences uh, that I just mentioned in the schools in the UN, that, that some of that can be traced back to some of these 
some of these other nefarious characters. I did pull this up while you were chat, uh, chatting there. Uh, it's called the Manitou Foundation, or I don't know how you say it. It's M-A-N-I-T-O-U Foundation and Institute of Con- Cons- Conservancy. Uh, and this was founded by Maurice Strong and his wife, which I believe is Hannah. It's H-A-N-N-E. And the patrons or benefactors are Mary and Lawrence Rockefeller. And then right next to them are pictures of uh, some Tibetan monk dude. And then there's there's several other pictures of them with various Tibetans. So I was I was correct about that. But I don't know that that's the same compound where uh, where Chris Chandler was at. Um, But I think it says it's in is it in it's in Colorado, this this place here. So uh, I it. I'm guessing that it is, and get, but it, it might not be. I, I think it might, uh, um, it might, it might not be. But yeah, that's so. So I was, uh, I was at least in the ballpark on that. Yeah. So what was going on with the pale ride, uh, the pale horse quote from Hubbard? Yeah. So that was, you know, one of the most infamous quotes. Uh, and anytime I looked it up. Everybody said that it was in the book of co-creation. So there's there's two books that I have of hers that are titled The Revelation. One of them has the subtitle, The Book of Co-Creation. The quote is not in there. Okay. Um, so then I kept looking around and there was, I found another blog, uh, which didn't, at least had, tried to cite its sources, which I appreciate because, uh, you know, when people do blogs and they don't cite like you get, you get a lead, but there's not much you can do with it because you don't know where to trace the lead. And so it's always, it's always frustrating to me when, when uh, people lack citations, but I, the citation I found was for, was a manual called something to the effect of the, uh, the manual of co-creation or something like that. And it was like a, it was an, uh, um, basically like a, a, in a spiral plastic spiral binder, uh, it looked like someone just printed it at like a, a copy X or a Kinko's. And then it had like a, um, in the back, it had uh, like a little postcard where you could like order more materials or you could, um, you know, network with something called you know, the rings of, of resonating empowerment or something to that effect. Um, and it's, it was basically a, a sort of like a, a workbook that I, that I guess uh, Hubbard had sold at, you know, some of these conferences that she would set up. Sometimes she called them syncons, uh, synergistic convergences. Um, and so this blog said it was from this manual of co-creators. Like, oh, well, maybe that's it. So it's, no, it's not it either. And the reason why I thought that possibly was it was because uh, um, it was actually uh, John, it was John Brisson who found the um, – uh, was able to find this email from between her uh, Hubbard and a Dave Hartley and some like some mail archive. Uh, and he sent that to me because I was asking him, I said, I said, dude, can, do you know where this quote is? So because I can't, it's not in the book that, that I have. I don't know if it's a different edition, etc. So he finds the email and then in the email, um, the only problem with that is, you know, it's, it's anonymized at least in terms of the, the addresses, right? So, so that, you know, it's like it, you are, it's an archive of emails, but it keeps people's personal uh, contacts uh, private. So, you know, c- couldn't verify that w- wasn't able to locate Dave Hartley. Um, so the best I had to go on was that, you know, possibly it was, 
if that email was correct, that was the best verification. In there, she mentioned that it was an it was in an unpublished manuscript that she denounced, and so then it was like, well, uh, that was why I thought the man that book that uh, handbook might have been the unpublished manuscript, but it wasn't. So lo and behold, um, I found a passage from the book that. Uh, which is quoted in the article that sounded like it could have been a revised version of the pale horse quote. Um, and very similar, a lot of overlaps and I, I explicated in the article. Um, but that was as far as I could get with it. And then I did that debate with some of her colleagues and it was actually one of the, one of her colleagues, very, you know, like I said, very nice people. We had our differences, disagreed about things, but uh, one of them shared uh, went on a hike with somebody. I'll leave their names out in case they don't want them out there. Uh, went on a hike with somebody who said, uh, they, they, and they start talking about my article. And, and this person um, had worked for Stan Monteith at Radio Liberty, he used to do, take calls for him and stuff. And he, 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 emailed, uh, he emailed the other person who was, was hiking with, uh, Hubbard's, uh, one of her friends of her colleagues he emailed her a, a portion of this unpublished manuscript and so i said oh can i talk to him and so so she put me in contact with him i ended up talking with him uh emailed over the phone and i you know i said well how did stan get it you know it was interesting because stan monteith was was christian um and you know it was just how would how would it didn't make sense to me how the publisher would have leaked would have or would have wanted to leak this damning manuscript to to a Christian of all people, unless you know maybe this was one of these New Agers that was like, "Whoa, this isn't <laughs> this isn't what I think I signed up for." Maybe you know I need to get this out there. Um, so I says, you know, well, he says, "No, I don't know how Stan got it." So uh, he says, "Let me let me talk to uh, Constance Cumby. Maybe she knows." So he talks to her and. Lo and behold, she, she had it. She has, she used to go around, uh, you know, this is in the eighties is before the internet and stuff. And, you know, she was a lawyer. And so she knew how to, you know, find documents and things. And she would go to these conferences, uh, Hubbard's conferences. And that's where you would buy these. This is before, uh, she, she got the Rockefeller funding. This is before she, uh, set up the foundation for conscious evolution before she was publishing books, uh, you know, in, in the actual, you know, from reputable presses, I guess she was basically just printing these like workbooks, these little, uh, documents, and then would, uh, would sell them, um, at, at the, um, at the conferences. So I'm going to go up there. Uh, Constance, uh, we discussed when I get a chance here after the end of the semester and after my grade papers and stuff, I'm going to go up there. I want to get a, uh, get a look at the physical copy and, uh, Maybe, um, I know she said she's trying to get rid of some of the stuff that she'd scanned because she said she's got a, it's on like literally a hundred thousand book library. Uh, but I have a digital copy of it and it's copyrighted 1983, which is several years before the actual book of co-creation, uh, was published, but it has a little preface here. This was like a work, a work in progress. So this is this unpublished manuscript it says the following text is the concluding third of a larger work, the book of co-creation. An evolutionary perspective on the New Testament of the Holy Bible, recorded in 1980. So this is three years after uh, she started the manuscript, and 
what's interesting about it is it actually has, there's passages in here, uh, some of which I quoted in the article, that are in the published version of the book of co-creation. So it's got the pale horse quote in there, but it's also got other excerpts uh, that that made it that made their way into the actual book. So um, it's it's a real document, and she she told stories. I'm going to interview her when I can get a chance, so she can tell the backstory uh, on how basically. Um, I guess she said, Constance said she used to go to these, uh, these conferences and she would like, when it was like Q and A time, she would raise her hand and read that quote. And so she was like, it was not, it did not look good. Uh, you know, like people were like, Whoa. And so I guess Hubbard at some point, she said that, um, she had agreed to stop selling it. And she said, you know, I'd go back, you know, to uh, follow up go to another one of these conferences and she's like, yeah, and she was still selling it. So apparently she continued to sell them uh, uh, for quite a while afterwards. Um, and so, um, so hopefully, like I said, I, I'm going to at least, you know, I'm going to go in and uh, take a, take a snapshot of me holding the physical document, but I got, I've got a digital copy here. And apparently then, um, you know, apparently it's, worse than my article originally said. So that's why I want to get her on record to sort of uh, add that piece of information and, you know, sort of correct the record. I mean, correct might might be the best word because I didn't, I didn't outright refute it. I was as careful as possible to say that, you know, it's almost verified, but now I've, I've, I've finally tracked it down and, um, we can, we can say that, yeah, Hubbard did write that passage. Uh, and, um, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that it's not only worse, but it's also interesting too, because like you said, you know, some of her colleagues said that she was just kind of naive and that, you know, she was kind of being, you know, uh, I don't know what the proper word is, but that she was kind of like naive as to some of the people and groups that she surrounded herself with, but that there's a lot of good things in her work. And so it's interesting that this is something that she said early in her career, you know what I mean? Um, and also that this is, uh, you know, kind of like such a, such a harsh statement, which, you know, I can't read anybody's heart and I'm, you know, not, not trying to, but it can make one wonder if, maybe she was as naive as some other people might might think that she was or if these were you know truly deeply held convictions that she you know held for a long time even before she you know had established contact with some of the you know powerful people who she would become involved with yeah and and it's it's hard to tell too because so constance said at one point she went and met with her i think it was when she went to pick up one of the books because she was selling them uh i think her daughter or granddaughter or somebody was selling the books uh and she had she had met her uh through that process and then one day uh came by invited her for a dinner or a lunch or something and she was like oh she's a lovely host and she's a great cook and all this other stuff and i was like so do you think that you know i asked her about the you know do you think she was naive or whatever she's like i <laughs> basically was like no i don't think so and it's you know the, the whole you know not to paint with too broad a brush, but it's a, it's a method of rhetoric that's used. It's often used by people that come out of that new age, transpersonal psychology background. It's a Rogerian style of what's known as conflict revolution, resolution, conflict resolution. 
and Rogerian in the sense of Carl Rogers. And Carl Rogers was this psychologist who basically his, his technique for uh, doing therapy was to find common ground and to then from that common ground uh, sort of bring, bring, transition the person over to the, to this, to the uh, state of, I guess, lack of a better term, self-actualization or what, whatever they needed to come to terms with psychically. Right. As opposed to like just pointing out the pathologies and then try and being corrective and, and, and directive. And in, and in rhetoric, which is my background, the Rogerian argument uh, is uh, the opposite of the classical um, argument, which basically you have a thesis at the, at the beginning of the of the uh, of the paper or of the speech. And this and the thesis lays out the main points that are going to be supported and developed and proven. And then the conclusion is basically just going to recap everything. Uh, somewhere in the middle there, you should obviously it'll be addressing the counter argument and rebutting it. The Rogerian style sort of flips it on its head and basically starts with, you start with the other side, affirm things uh, that the other side believes or agrees with, build the, the common ground through that affirmation. And then slowly, that's that's the introduction of the speech or the or the paper. And then throughout the body, you slowly start to show, uh, uh, illustrate your side of the of the debate or the position in a ways that are increasingly or incrementally amenable to what you held in common. Right. So basically, you start to say, okay. You know, yes, we, we have these differing views, but here's the stuff that we agree on in the middle and then slowly walk them closer and closer to your side of the debate and away from their own position. And and it's not just done in that procedurally in that way, but the 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 ethos and the pathos, meaning the the, uh, the character and the emotion that's presented in the rhetoric is one that is entirely non-combative. It's, it's, it's very... Um, uh, it purports to be uh, to be an ally in the process, right? And so, uh, when you talk with someone like Hubbard, uh, you know, if she wasn't, you know, I mean, if if that person or whoever, uh, you know, whether I don't know, maybe she was channeling, and you know, I know she did channel, so may, maybe she channeled that pale horse quote. But whether she channeled it or whether that's like that's the the you know. That's the that's what's in her inner monologue, um, unfiltered. Uh, whether or not that's the case, or even if it is, I would imagine that when she would approach someone like Constance or anybody on the other end of the of the uh, of the aisle, that she would use that Rogerian style would be very nice. Would be very you know amenable and you know oh we agree on this and you know and try to build on that common ground and. Uh, and being, you know, ultimately very disingenuous in the process. Now, like you said, I don't know, you know, I don't know her heart and I can't get inside her heart or her mind. And uh, and, and it's not to say that that's not actually a, a diplomatic way to talk to people that you disagree with. I mean, I don't necessarily disagree with. I mean, that was largely how I approached the debate with some of her colleagues was, you know, to start with, you know, I didn't I didn't want it to be a fight because I I did understand that. 
they were disturbed by some of the things I'd pointed out. And maybe, you know, they had, and they admitted as they, it was in their own words, they'd had some blind spots. So I didn't want to start, here's my thesis and here's why you're wrong. And, and I win the debate and, you know, and then no one's, and then no one's minds are changed. No one's hearts are changed and no one's, you know, uh, no one, no one uh, moves any differently as a result. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it sort of gets us back to what we were talking about earlier with like, you know, thinking about what's who, who may or may not be controlled opposition. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to really, really say, uh, when, when people strategically use rhetoric to sort of, you know, maybe disarm you and bring you to their side of the debate. But according to Constance, it sounds to me like she, she would, she would lean towards, uh, that, you know, Hubbard really did believe that pale horse quote, that that is what she, uh, that is, that was her position and that, you know, the, the relative benevolent rhetoric that you hear in all her speeches and books is more of a patina or a veneer that sort of, you know, uh, kind of lull you into acceptance of what, what is actually the darker, uh, end game. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we can't know what someone's heart is, but here is what we can know is we can know what they've done, who they associate with. And we can also just kind of intuit um, to, you know, that the devil's not going to come with, you know, horns, a red cape and a pitchfork, but he's probably going to come, you know, saying nice and flattering things and trying to gain our trust. And the same can be said of, you know, people who maybe don't have good intentions, you know, not that we can necessarily say if someone does or, or doesn't, you know, but that we always have to remain, you know, critical of, of, of people. And so, I mean, I've really appreciated you coming on here to talk about all this. I think it's a lot of great information. Um, you know, after you tell people where they can find you and stuff, stay on for a second and we'll talk for a little bit afterwards, but um, is there any closing thoughts that you have for the listeners and where can they find you? Um, well, there's one little interesting tidbit that I'll just throw out there that I think uh, it's just useful to have. It sort of ties in with some of the other things we talked about, like uh, some of the weird, I guess, you know, the possibilities of um, <clears throat> uh, controlled opposition and things. And that is, one of the things that Constance mentioned was that, um, and I, she gave me a transcript of uh, a, con a phone conversation between uh, one of her colleagues and uh, somebody who was running, uh, it was called, I think, the Harmonic Convergence uh, 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 Conventions or whatever they were, workshops. And she said that, that Barbara Marks Hubbard was involved here, but so was Doug Coe and Paul Nathaniel Temple. And for those who don't know, Doug Coe was one of the uh, head, uh, one of the leaders of what's known as the family or the foundation. It's the, it's, you know, when they have the, it's a, it's a, when they do the national prayer, prayer breakfast, uh, it's basically, you know, it purports to be a Christian uh, organization uh, that tries to, uh, you know, have influence in politics. And Paul Nathaniel Temple is also part of that. Uh, and Paul Nathaniel Temple was also somebody who uh, heavily funded the Institute of Noetic Sciences. So it's just and one of these one of these interesting factoids there where you see, um, you know, you, you would think that, you know, somebody with sound 
Christian theology and doctrine <laughs> would not be uh, promoting either the Institute of Noetic Sciences or uh, anything, you know, new age proper, uh, in any way. And so it, it, it makes you wonder, you know, uh, you know, what, what are the other, what, what else goes on with some of those, you know, what we would think as Christian organizations as well, and how those might actually sort of, uh, maybe be, um, co-opted or, or otherwise infiltrated by, by new age stuff. But, uh, catch me at schoolworldorder.info. Um, and you know, all my social media is up there. Um, that's the easiest place to find the links. Um, and otherwise most of my, uh, journalism is at unlimited hangout. Uh, the links to my, to my book is at, uh, my website, schoolworldorder.info. Uh, that's the link to the trying day, uh, publishing house where, where you can get it. Um, but otherwise, you can get it on Amazon. Sometimes, sometimes he's sold out and, um, and Amazon's not and, or vice versa. So you can check either one, obviously, uh, better for the publisher and myself. If, um, if you go through directly through them as opposed to, to Amazon, but, um, those are the, those are the main things I got going on. I'm moving slow, uh, with, uh, trying to get this next piece out, but, um, uh, if you just if you keep in touch uh, with me either through social media or the website, uh, that's where you can find me. If you just want to pick my brain or whatever, uh, send me an email. That's the best way to get a hold of me. I don't spend a whole lot of time on social media these days. I, sometimes I go weeks without touching it. I try to I try to check it at least once a week, but I do check my emails every day. And if you just wanted to ask questions or you know you got any leads or provide any feedback. I always respond. Sometimes it might take me, I try to do every 24 hours, but sometimes it might take me a little longer. So my apologies if I'm not uh, 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 quick enough on emails, but that's where you can get me. All right. Perfect. And everybody go check it out because it is really good stuff and you're not going to be disappointed and there's a lot to learn. So thank you all for listening.